0: Generations Church exists to glorify God in our community, to make disciples of Jesus, and to multiply churches so that the next generation is equipped to glorify God better than we did.
1: Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whenever and however you are listening. Welcome to the Generations Church Podcast. My name is Vinny Hanke, and we are exploring our series, Guilt, Grace, and Gratitude, where we're making connections and themes within the Heidelberg Catechism to our modern-day lives. I'm here once again with Jeff Luddington, lead pastor of Generations Church. Good morning, Jeff, how you doing? Good morning, Vinny, how are you? I'm doing really good, man. I'm ready to get into part two of Lord's Day seven with you. Yeah. We did yeah. Uh, part one last week, if you're listening, uh, maybe you can get down, download that episode so you're tracking with us and yeah. looking forward to today.
0: So Lord's Days in the Heidelberg Catechism are, uh, Lord's Day is, a, is another name for Sunday. The day that that Jesus rose from the dead This that Lord's Day, right? As as the worship of God shifted from Saturday to Sunday, there's this language that comes around it, and the Heidelberg Catechism is written in 52 Lord's Days. In other words, designed to begin your week and be studied throughout the week for 52 weeks, so it covers a year's worth of content. We're doing our podcasts and following those episodes, so each episode is a Lord's Day or a week's worth of content, and so on Tuesday we released part one of Lord's Day seven. Uh, today, Thursday, we're releasing part two, and the reason for that is there's four questions in Lord's Day 7. It talks about if all have died in Adam, do all live in Christ or are all saved in Christ? And we said, no, that's universalism, that's, that's something other, and, and we worked through some scripture to figure that out. We talk about what, then what must it look like, what, what must happen or what must it be for someone who is a truly having faith? And we talked about not only a certain knowledge that we accept as true, but also a wholehearted trust. And we talked about walking in newness of life. But this is going to then move on the same Lord's Day. So again, this is Lord's Day 7, part 2. And it's going to ask, well, what is that that the Christian must believe? Now, I want to pause there. Pastor Vinny and I have been walking through this like a father does to a son, like a teacher to a student, and we've been reading it. I ask the question, he answers it, and this is designed to be memorized. I, I memorize the questions as the asker, and the, the disciple memorizes these answers, just like we memorize times tables when we were kids, or we memorize songs we sing along. It's, it's designed that way so that we will internalize our faith. So I'm going to do question 22 and question 23 with Pastor Vinny, and then I want to unpack something for you that is important to me. Question 22 says, what then must a Christian believe? Answer 22 reads, all that is promised us in the
1: gospel, a summary of which is taught us in the articles of our universally acknowledged
0: Christian faith. That's a a handful. That's really good. Now, question 23 asks, what are these articles?
1: Answer 23. I believe in God the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence He shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting.
0: Amen. All right, before anybody shuts off our podcast, yes, you heard the word Catholic. So let me, let me start there. Now, and I'm going to make a point out of this and why this is important. So Catholic does not mean Roman Catholic. This was written roughly 700 years before there was a Roman Catholic church. So think early church, 1st century, 2nd century, 3rd century, 4th century church, the early church. That's what we talk about. When this creed was put together, it was in the early church. There was one universal church. Now in question 20, or in answer 22, in answering what then must a Christian believe, the last four words are, or five words are, our universally acknowledged Christian faith. So this is a universally acknowledged Christian faith. And that's because it predates many of the schisms in the church. And I'll explain that in a second. The word Catholic, if you're reading along, you read this in the catechism, what is happening is the Apostles' Creed is being quoted here. And the Apostles' Creed is something birthed out of the Apostles' doctrine in the early church. They, The early church wrote and they said, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. But Catholic is a little c. It's not capitalized. Church is capitalized because it means a holy universal church. Catholic is a word that means universal. Now, fast forward to about 1,000 years after Jesus ascended. At that 1,000 mark, what we have is what's called the East-West Split, So the Orthodox traditions, Russian Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, uh, all those traditions break off and go one direction, and the Roman Catholic Church really is born. It's the Western Church. What we know as Roman Catholicism today is birthed out of that, 500 years later, The Protestant Reformation tries to fix the Roman Catholic Church, but they don't relent to that, so they don't want that. And so you get what is known as the Reformation or Reformed Churches, you get what is known as Protestant Churches because they are protesting and trying to reform the Roman Catholic Church. But let me just say this, and this isn't a jab at Roman Catholics at all. Catholic means universal. Roman Catholic is almost a contradiction in terms right? This is limiting the universal church to the Roman church. And so understand, when we say that today, when we quote the Apostles' Creed, or when we read the Heidelberg Catechism, the word Catholic is in there, but it does not mean Roman Catholic, it means universal. Could you develop the word universal
1: too? So you're talking about every believer from every age through all time
0: and all eternity. Yeah, that's a great question. So the universal church uh, is this, Every believer ever who is truly in Christ, and I say truly, I, there are people wandering all around today that identify themselves as Christians that don't look anything like that. Now, that's not up for me to discern, right? I can use biblical metrics and assign them to people and say what I think or what it looks like. Hey, this is not what a Christian is supposed to live like, but only God knows their heart. And we talk, there's a lot. Of, there's a culture that says, don't judge me, right? Well, the Bible actually has three different words for the word judge, like the office of judge, like somebody who has a gavel and a robe. That's a judge, right? And then there's the word judge that we are called to, like every believer is called to judge others and other things, but it's, it's the word that we tend to translate discern, right? Discern what is right and wrong. We are to judge right from wrong. There's a third word, and it's judge eternal. Only Christ can judge eternally. Only Christ can. Right? Only God knows the heart of a human being. And so when I say this, when I talk about universal, so I talk about all those who are truly in Christ. And I can say what I think, but only Christ knows a heart. I can say what the Bible calls us to, but it is up to Jesus to discern who is in Christ and who is not. That's where we are in the Heidelberg Catechism, is we're saying, well, then what is true faith? Or what must a Christian believe? And so Christian, in the largest sense of the word universal church in the largest sense of the word means this you might be eastern orthodox you might be catholic you might be protestant you might be evangelical all those things trace their lineage back to the apostles creed they all still use it regularly Uh, modern churches uh, casual churches non-denominational, non-traditional churches don't use apostle, things like the Apostles' Creed or the Lord's Prayer as often as traditional churches do, but they all ascribe to it. And so we have to deal with this word Catholic, but that's actually not my biggest complaint. And so Vinny, I sent you a text message yesterday. I said, hey, when, when you use the Apostles' Creed, do you use the version that says hell? I- and we had a little joking back. Well,
1: go ahead. I did. I sent back... Uh- H-E double hockey sticks exclamation point. Yes, yep. that's the version that
0: we use uh, and then I've used. Uh, yep. I'm just going to say Vinny is deeply offensive and he didn't use hockey sticks. I'm going to say he spelled the real word out. I did. That's okay. Right. All right. So uh, if that's the worst thing we ever do, I think we're all right. That's right. So I have an issue. I have an issue with the Apostles' Creed and the way the Apostles' Creed is quoted in the Heidelberg Catechism. Yep. And so I want to run through a little history uh, and, I, and, I, and I want to admit to you up front I'm saying this, and I believe I can go to scripture and I can defend this, but I am also fighting some history, and I'm fighting some modern current theology. Uh, If you know anything about catechisms, uh, in the last 10 years, I think it's been, uh, Tim Keller and, and City Church out in New York, they put out the New City Catechism. And the New City Catechism also uses the Apostles' Creed. So just as a heads up, the The Apostles' Creed, again, roughly seventeen hundred years old in its in its modern in its current form, Uh, it is going to be the very thing. Those are what the Catechism is calling the Articles of our faith. There's twelve articles in it. The next twelve days, or the next, uh, I'm sorry, the next several episodes will cover all twelve articles. But there are different versions of the Apostles' Creed. Let me explain that to you. Just as there are different translations of the Bible, King James. Uh, you know, several hundred years ago, translated one of the early translations into English. That's the King James Version. It's got all the these and thous and thou setteth and things like that. Sounds like you got marbles in your mouth when you talk, right? We used to like to read that version in junior high because he used the word ass. Oh, see, there you go. Balaam's ass. Yep. So we got hell and ass all in one podcast. All right, everybody's going to be shutting us off. Or we might actually grab some more listeners now. I don't know. I'm here to help. So the Apostles' Creed was not written in English right? Much to people's belief, right? Disbelief. The Bible was not written in English. So the Old Testament was primarily written in Hebrew, with the exception of one book that was written in Chaldee, a dead language. The New Testament was written in Koine Greek, right? Also a dead version of the Greek language, very different than modern day Greek. These are languages that have rotated out of history for the most part, okay? Hebrews changed as well. So none of these things were written in English. In fact, we talked about this in our introduction, The Heidelberg Catechism was written before Germany existed in the country that is now Germany in a language that is much like German. So the earliest copies of the Heidelberg Catechism are written in German. They're translated into English. Now, we believe that God has superintended scripture. That means God has sovereignly kept his hand on the documents of scripture, the letters of the church, the letters of the prophets, and that he has uniquely superintended them. So that whether you read them in Spanish or you read them in English, that God has preserved them for us, right? That he's handed them down and that he has guarded them. But we have to understand also that as they are translated in languages, one, language changes. You just made a joke about using the word ass in middle school. Well, that meant donkey when it was written, right? right? Today means something entirely else. We'll just leave that alone, right? All right. So the same thing with many words. To say several hundred years ago that a woman was with child, everybody meant pregnant. To say today with child means she's probably carrying a born child, right? So language changes, but also sometimes things creep into history. God has superintended the Bible, but creeds and confessions have struggled with translation, right? We only believe, and we've said this before, the creeds and confessions that we read are only as true as they prove to be true under the authority of Scripture. So I'm going to pick a fight with the word hell. I'm going to say that some modern, brilliant people disagree with me, and I'm going to say I'm coming at this, but I believe that it's biblical. I also want you to know in the common worship translation used by the vast majority of churches, not particularly our tribe, they use a different version, and it says that he descended to the dead, and I'm going to assert that that is the correct way to translate it. And so... Here's the word. So when we look at a Bible today, in fact, our church, Generations Church, we use the ESV translation. It is a modern, um, literal equivalent translation. It's not a dynamic equivalent. We'll do that on another day. But it, as close to as we can, is word for word, right? Other translations like the NLT, the Message, or the NIV, they are thought-for-thought translations. For me, as a teacher, there's too much involved in people's thinking, not enough in translation. So we go with a literal equivalent. Okay. And so, uh, when we, when we do this, we want as accurate as possible. Now there's a bunch of words in Greek that are going to come into play here. One is necron or necros, where we get necro, like right, the word for dead, necrophilia. People mm-hmm. love the dead. I hate to use that example, but there we oh, yeah. go. Right. Uh, mortis, where we get the word mortal is the Latin word, right. That was used then when the, when the, um, when the apostles creed was written, It's written in Latin. And so mortus was one example of that. Greek was necron. Those both mean dead. They don't mean hell. Yeah, right. They mean people that are dead. Yep. Gehenna means hell. Hades means something different. So those are Greek words. They come out of culture back then. But Hades was this Greek word that was the equivalent of the Hebrew word sheol that meant where everybody goes when they die. So imagine you're in the Old Testament, and you die before Jesus enters into human history, but you die in faith. You go to Sheol. So do wicked people, and they're all awaiting judgment, right? And this is not to be confused with, like, purgatory or anything else. This was before Christ. Sheol meant everybody. In fact, it even talks about people that die in faith going to Abraham's bosom, those who died in faith, right? Transfer that to the New Testament now, and the word Hades appears many times. And in every translation leading up to something that happened In English, it always was translated to the dead, not to hell. The King James Version, written almost 600 years ago, so 550 years ago or so, comes out and it translates the word Hades into hell. And that starts this ripple effect. Now, modern day translations, including the New King James, translate the word Hades into Hades. They don't use the word hell. And so they've pulled back from that. So there was a little bias and a translation back then, but it was also kind of the understanding back then. But God, again, has superintended the Bible, has really guarded that, and as language has changed, so has translation. The word Gehenna meant more like hell. The place in the Bible that is a lot like this, like Revelation, uses lake of fire. But Jesus uses the word hell a lot of times, and he uses the word Gehenna. So in the 1600s, when we get this Heidelberg Catechism written in another language, it uses another language. When it got translated into English, one version of it uses hell. And I'm, I'm saddened that that's the translation we get. Thoughts up to that point, Vinny? I, I want to get to some scripture on this real quick. Yeah,
1: I think for my own uh Particular, we because we understand the Apostles' Creed was not inspired by God in the same in a, to the same authority and level that we believe Scripture is inspired by God. I've always been comfortable with hell, but I've always taught through it and, and worked through it and, okay. and, and talked about it. Um, when we think of Christ descending, like descending into suffering and in and the kind of the crucifixion of being the, yeah. that hellish suffering, and yep. been free to interpret it that way again because I'm not dealing with Scripture, so I've been right. a little more loose with my words there. But I think yeah. so far what you're, what, you're, uh, what you're tracking makes super um, uh, important sense in terms of how we think about our Bibles we choose to read, how we think about the, how we interact with the creeds, and helps us understand a little bit of why, like when we go to bookstores or when we, when we see these documents, why they can look so different mm. without freaking
0: out. Yeah. So I want to give you some passages that really kind of bring this home for me. So here's why People have wrestled with death or Hades. Did Jesus descend to the dead? Or did he descend into hell? Right? That's the question. It's really birthed out of this two passages. This is the most prominent one. Ephesians 4 says this, starting, starting verse 7. says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he, meaning Jesus, ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, comma, the earth question mark right what does it mean but that he did descend to the lower regions meaning the earth he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things paul as he writes this is quoting psalm 68 that says you ascended on high leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men even among the rebellious that the lord god may dwell there it's talking about the ascension the prophecy of the ascension well, Paul is writing about the ascension saying, listen, how can we say he ascended as God right. if he didn't at some point descend, become human, yep. right? And so, yeah, that might be nitpicky, but let me, let me do this. Let me take three statements from Jesus on the cross. As Jesus has willingly given up his life, he's died the crucifixion, the most painful death. He's done it as a sinless God and human flesh to be our perfect sacrifice. Here's three things he says. John nineteen thirty, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Luke twenty-three, forty-six says, Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and having that having said this, he breathed his last. There's also Luke twenty-three, forty-three, where he looks at the thief on the cross before he dies, and he says, Today you will be with me in paradise. It certainly sounds like Jesus has a very specific next location
1: he's going to find himself. Oh, yeah. At the end of this. And it, it doesn't sound like hell.
0: No. So it is finished. Jesus says, I've done everything necessary to accomplish salvation except exhale. Man. Well, he doesn't say except exhale, but that's what he does. <laughs> and, he's, and it's done, right? Yep. Before that, he says, God, here you are, Father. I, in your hands, I commit my spirit. My spirit's not going to hell. It's going to you. He looks at the thief next to him and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. In Acts, Peter, knowing what Jesus said, knowing what Jesus accomplished, Peter says this. He quotes some Old Testament prophecy. He says, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. That's quoting David in Psalms. Peter continues, he foresaw... And he spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he, Jesus, was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So Peter says, no, that's not what happened. Yep. Jesus says, no, I'm not going to hell today. I will, you will be with me in paradise. I've done everything necessary. I don't have to go to hell to suffer. Now, I'm going to throw this out there. I, I'm going to say this. I, I would additionally make the case that Jesus creates hell for Satan and right. for all those right. who die without faith and all those evil demons, those spirits that followed Satan in rebellion. That's for another day. We can, we can pull that apart. But I'm going to say with a, a, a surety in my heart, with a humility, though, I don't believe Jesus descended to hell. I believe that Jesus did everything necessary and say he didn't. And so that when we read this catechism, I love this catechism. Yeah. I love the New City Catechism. Keller wrote this, and he added the same thing. But I'm going to say this. Jesus didn't go to hell. Jesus suffered on the cross for us, Jesus lived a life we didn't live that we were supposed to. He lived it in our place. Then he died the death we deserve, paying the penalty for all that we have. And Jesus is today never been to hell and is seated at the right hand of the Father where we can aspire to be in Christ. Awesome. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate your time and attention
1: and the detail, you, things we probably might even read over. With the context, man, it can help us understand. Thank you for listening to the Generations Church podcast. Please subscribe and share, write a review wherever podcasts are found. For more content and to make a connection with us, please visit us at genfamily.church. That's gen, like short for Generations, family.church.
0: For more information, visit our website at genfamily.church. G E N family.church. You can also follow our social media accounts at Jin Family Church.